Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. So we've actually just met in the last couple of chapters the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe of Israel, who, though he is physically impressive, it tells us he's, there's nobody as handsome as him, he's taller by head and shoulders than everybody else. Um, Samuel even seems kind of taken by him in some ways. Behold, there's nobody like him in all of Israel, right? So although he's physically impressive, he has yet to really inspire confidence in terms of what we've seen from him, either in terms of character or in terms of his willingness and readiness to obey the commands of God. And nevertheless, this is the man that God has uh, appointed, anointed as king over his people. And so the story continues today, uh, and we'll see Saul in his first sort of kingly action. And by the end of chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, uh, the story is going to look a bit different. The attitude of the people and maybe our own judgment of Saul might start to shift a little bit. The people will be uh, extremely supportive and encouraged and excited about Saul by the time this chapter ends. But before we get into the story of Saul, I wanted to read to you a few verses from very early in this book. The book opened with a barren woman named Hannah who was... uh, desperate for a child, and her husband had another wife who had provided sons for him, and Hannah was barren, had not provided any children for him, and so she was pleading with God to give her a son. And so God heard her prayer and opened her womb, as the Bible says, and blessed her with a child, and of course that child is Samuel, who she dedicated to the service of the Lord And as soon as he was old enough, she took him to the temple, and he lived there and grew up there, learning how to serve God, and you know the rest of the story uh, up to where we are. But when God had answered Hannah's prayer and provided her with a a son, she offered this this exultant prayer of praise in chapter 2. And I want to read portions of this for you because it's, it's... the themes that Hannah lays out in this prayer continue to emerge, and we'll see uh, a way that that comes out in today's text. So she says, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And so she's going to begin speaking to enemies. Don't talk proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Skip down about verse 6 of chapter 2. She says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that is the place of the dead, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And she concludes this prayer by saying, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
And so the, this theme that comes out in this prayer of praise of God taking the lowly and the weak and the poor and exalting them to new places of honor and, and dignity and, and strength will uh, come up again and again, and we'll see that uh, very powerfully illustrated in chapter 11. And so let's go ahead and begin in uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read to you the first four verses, and then we'll talk about what we see as we go. So Saul has been, just as a quick reminder, in chapter 10, privately anointed as king by Samuel in a ceremony that nobody else knew about, just Saul and Samuel, and then publicly selected through the casting of lots. God led them to the selection of Saul as king. And so now chapter 11 begins this way. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So, this is the stage being set, if you will, and it's not a pretty scene. So, this village in Israel, Jabesh Gilead, is approached by this very big, bad, strong uh, guy, Nahash the Ammonite. He is uh, not a nice guy. Uh, and in fact, there are legends that what he's suggesting here um, to do to this village in Israel, to gouge out all of their right eyes as sort of a peace treaty. It's a very peaceful treaty, isn't it? Um, he's been doing that. He's sort of been going through the region and subduing peoples and, and causing this kind of disgrace to come upon people just as a perpetual, constant reminder to them and to anyone who sees them of their subservience to Nahash the Ammonite. Right? So this is arrogance, this is military power, this is ruthlessness uh, at its worst. And so they've, he, they've come, Nahash has come to this village in Israel to attack them, and they say, well, don't, can we please make a treaty with you? We'll, we'll be your slaves. We'll serve you. We don't even need to fight. And he says, well, only if you'll let me gouge out all of your right eyes. So they stall, right? This is the, about the best they can come up with. Give us a week, right? Give us, give us seven days to basically find out if anybody will come and help us. And here's how, A, arrogant Nahash is, and B, how weak Israel must be, or at least be perceived at this time. Nahash is willing to give them a week to drum up whatever help they can find. He's not really afraid that the Israelites are actually going to find someone who will come and fight for them and defeat Nahash and his Ammonite armies. And so he says, sure, you can have a week. Um, and so the people uh, begin, you know, desperately searching for someone to help, right? 
they, they begin to spread word. And, and it tells us right away uh, that the word came to Gebeah of Saul. That's the village uh, in the tribe of Benjamin where Saul lives, right? So that's the hometown of the new king, uh, Gebeah. And so word comes to Gebeah, but the picture that we get of the Israelites in this is not pretty at all. Now, for one thing, they, there's no mention of them going to the Lord. There's no mention of them speaking to Samuel, who is God's prophet and judge over them, right? There, there's, there, there's, no, there's no indication that they really have a spiritual inclination at all here to, to go after God. God, what do we do? Will you please help us? They just start scrambling to find anyone, whoever they can possibly find, to come and help. And I think sometimes we do that too. Sometimes when we're in trouble, sometimes when we're up against the wall, the Lord is the last one that we turn to. We're looking on the internet for answers to our problem. We're calling friends, texting people, hey, help me, hey, pray for me, hey, think about me, whatever, before we've even necessarily had the thought to, like, I should go and talk to the Lord about this. And so I think this, that same sort of spiritual amnesia uh, that infected the Israelites infects us at times as well. Nevertheless, this is a desperate situation. If somebody doesn't come through for the men, uh, the people of, of Jabesh Gilead, they're going to be in a very bad way. They're going to be not just in physical turmoil, but in, sub, in servitude and slavery to the Ammonites and permanently reminded of their weakness, of their cowardice, and of uh, the, their utter defeat uh, among the, their, the enemies of God. And so it is a desperately weak situation. And the picture that we get of them is they are totally helpless and hopeless. They really seem like we have no idea what to do here. Just give us a week to do the best that we can, to just find out if there's anything that can happen. And I think there's lessons for us to learn here just to think about and reflect on the nature of weakness. We don't like to think about our weakness or to admit our weakness. The Israelites' helplessness and desperation here really are what set the stage for the action that's about to happen and the, the way that God will come through for them and rescue them. And it is, it, it, it's on the backdrop, against the backdrop of their utter desperation their utter helplessness and weakness. And yet when it comes to weakness and limitations and faults and things like that, we are kind of allergic to that. We don't want to talk about weakness. We don't want anybody else to point out weakness. Uh, we certainly don't want to, to admit that we have weaknesses. We feel like maybe we have to act like we have everything under control, right? And sometimes we even use uh, silly unbiblical aphorisms like God won't give me more than I can handle, right? I'm not weak. I can handle everything that comes my way. The truth is God might purposefully send stuff that you can't handle to help bring you to the point of admitting that you can't handle everything. We need that humility. We need to recognize that we don't have everything that it takes to fulfill my own plans and dreams, let alone God's purposes, let alone participate in the building of an eternal kingdom where the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. And uh, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 
And so we are allergic to weakness, but really it's in recognizing our weakness that the, the door is open for the Holy Spirit to step through, for God to really come through in a powerful way. Listen, whether the enemy that you are facing at any given time is a task that feels too big for you, a hard situation that you just can't change, a pattern of sin that you think you'll never overcome, whatever it is, acknowledging your weakness is the starting place for transformation. That's where the God's Spirit does his best work, when somebody will come to him in recognition of their weakness and their brokenness, and their helplessness, and cast themselves upon God for help. That story in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus tells illustrates this so beautifully, as there's a Pharisee who's very righteous outwardly. He's the guy that keeps the law to the T, and is very proud of it. And then you've got a tax collector, who in that day, to their ears, would have been scum, scoundrel, lowlife. So you've got a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee is praying uh, at the temple, and he's saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, you know, that I fast, and I pray, and I give a tenth of all that I have, and I, you know, so he's going through his spiritual resume, and he says, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here, this, you know, unrighteous guy, but the tax collector, Jesus says, wouldn't even go all the way in or near the temple, and, and, and he wouldn't even lift his eyes. He kept his eyes down, and he was, was beating his chest in a sign of sorrow and repentance, and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which of these men went home justified? That is, right with God. And the clear implied answer is, not the Pharisee with the great spiritual resume and all the, the respect of the people around him, but the weak guy, the sinful guy that recognized his sin and came to God in weakness, confessing and pleading for mercy. That's the one Jesus said is right with God. That's the starting place for God's work in our lives is recognizing our total helplessness. That's where the Holy Spirit can step in and do his best work. God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, which is not the answer Paul was hoping for. He says three times he had prayed that God would remove something from him. This, he calls it a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, but God says, my grace is enough. It's going to remain there, right? Whatever this hardship is, I'm not going to remove it because my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's conclusion was um, that he could live with it. He could live with this weakness. And in fact, he goes so far as to say in verse 10, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How often do we boast of our weaknesses, right? How often do we lead with that? Hey, I'm Kyle. I'm weak and limited and helpless, right? That's, that's not how we like to think of ourselves, and we like to present this air that we've got it all together, even with our own brothers and sisters in Christ and the church, and we all know better. We all know that none of us have it all together, but we still feel this need at times to sort of act like we're, we, we have it all under control. May the Lord grant us the humility to drop the tough guy act and just run to him in our weakness. 
So desperate situation, weak people, and they are now searching for anyone, anything that can possibly help them out of the situation. Well, lucky for them, I shouldn't say lucky, God is at work, providential for them, God is at work. So let's look at verse 5, we'll read the next several verses together. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and when he heard these words, and his anger was, excuse me, when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. That's a pretty radical turn of events. That's a flipping of the script, if you will, where you have this weak, desperate, helpless people under the, the thumb, if you will, of this strong, mighty, ruthless Ammonite warrior. And it looks like there's nothing that could possibly help them. And nevertheless, humanly speaking, Saul comes to the rescue. But of course, we recognize that Saul is not really the, the one who is to thank for this rescue. But this is, a, this is kind of a crazy scene here. So when Saul hears, when Saul hears what's going on in Jabesh and that this threat has been made, it tells us in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. Now that should instantly remind us of what we saw in chapter 10, where Samuel told Saul that as he was returning home from being anointed as king, he would see these various signs to confirm that God indeed had anointed him as king. And one of those signs was that he would be approached by a group of prophets singing and prophesying and praying, and that the Spirit would rush upon him, and that he would prophesy with them. And then Samuel said, do what your hand finds to do. And we learn in the text that there was a garrison of Philistines in, uh, in that place where the prophets gathered and where the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And that phrase, the Spirit of God rushed upon somebody, is used only elsewhere of Samson three different times in the book of Judges. The Spirit of God rushes upon Samson, and he attacks the Philistines. He fights and strikes down the enemies of God's people. So this phrase, for the Spirit to rush upon somebody, has a very limited and unique usage, and it is the empowering 
the temporary empowering of a person by God's Spirit to accomplish a particular task. And actually, in every case that it's used, the task is fighting the enemies of God's people and, and, and triumphing over them in battle. And if you'll remember, that was the very thing that, Saul had, that Samuel had told Saul when he anointed him king. He gave him his job description in chapter 10, verse 1. He said, you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. That was the job of King Saul, to protect the people of Israel from the enemies of God, which means to fight against them, to subdue them, to, uh, to press back against them. And then he sends him on this journey home, and he says, you're going to find some Philistines, and the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you. Well, what do you think he's supposed to do when he's in the presence of the enemies of God's people and the Spirit of God rushes upon him? He's supposed to attack. He's supposed to fight the enemies of God in that place. But as we found out last week, he doesn't do it. He shies away from that. Nevertheless, when Saul finds out what's going on in Jabesh, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. And we see a different response from Saul than we did in chapter 10. He goes kind of crazy. He goes like savage here. He grabs his oxen and cuts them into pieces and sends them all over the nation. And is, and is like, if you don't gather with me and fight against the Ammonites, I'm going to cut your oxen up too. Like this is a little over the top. Like this is crazy. But that's what he's, this is, the Spirit of God has rushed upon him. Now, the Spirit of God in my life has never led me to slaughter animals and smear blood on my face and that kind of thing. But in this, the Spirit of God on Saul is leading him to, like, he is, his anger is kindled, it says. He is riled up. He is ready to fight. He is going to fulfill the job description that Samuel had given him in chapter 10, verse 1, to save his people from their surrounding enemies. Who needs saving in this passage? The men of Jabesh-Gilead who have this threat from the Ammonites who are enemies of the people of God. And here comes Saul. Here comes the Spirit of God rushing upon him to send what Saul even says in verse 9 is salvation. He says, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. It's very clear what the author here is doing. He's showing us the job description of Saul. He's showing us an early failure of Saul to, 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 to follow through with what he was commanded to do. And then in chapter 11, the first time Saul carries out the task that he was given by God through the empowering of the Spirit of God to rescue, to save the people of Israel. It is a pretty remarkable scene. And so he, when he tells the men of Jabesh Gilead, I'm coming. I'm going to bring you, we're going to bring you salvation. So the men of Jabesh then go back to Nahash, the Ammonite guy. And they say, tomorrow we're going to give ourselves up to you. So by this time, they're playing him, right? Because they know what's happening. They know Saul's got all these armies gathered in secret. And so they're like, yeah, Nahash, just tomorrow we'll come right out. Uh, you know, and we'll just hand ourselves over, no fight, no fuss, no argument. And so the Ammonites, they're sleeping like babies, right? 
they, they're like, our job is done. All we got to do is gouge out some eyes tomorrow. That's all, that's all our to-do list consists of tomorrow. So they're sleeping. Meanwhile, Saul is gathering his armies and dividing them into three companies, and they come into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. This is like the middle of the night, three in the morning, four in the morning, something like that. These dudes are asleep, and here come Saul and his armies, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So just like he said, by the time the sun is hot, you will have salvation. And so they strike down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and the ones who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Like, they are whew, running in 10,000 different directions. Get us out of here. That is not how Nahash and his men expected this to go. I don't think it's how the men of Jabesh-Gilead expected this to go. But when the Spirit of God is at work, things don't go the way you expect them to go. The Spirit of God changes everything. It ought to be very obvious to us as we read this story where Saul's sudden conviction, courage, and strength came from. In chapter 10, he shied away from attacking the Philistines. He hid the truth about the kingship from his family when they said, what did Samuel say to you? And he said, he told me you found the donkeys. No mention of the kingship. And he physically hid himself from the people when he was publicly selected as king. They said, and the lot falls to Saul. Wait, where? Where did he go? And God had to tell him. He's hiding behind some bags. And they had to drag him out to make him. No, you're the king, dude. You're hiding. So the picture of Saul in chapter 10 is a very, at best, reluctant servant. Not really looking for this attention or this role or this responsibility. And so when we see him in chapter 7... And he is leading a brutal tactical strike against a powerful, intimidating enemy. You have to ask, what made the difference for Saul? And it's verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. That's it. That's the only explanation for what goes on here. It's not that Saul suddenly like, found some inner strength, like looked inside himself and found the hero. Sorry, Mariah Carey. That's not what he did. It was the Spirit of God rushing upon him. That's probably an out-of-date reference. Anyway, so and check this out. So this is how the Spirit of God impacts the story of his people in that time and in this way. But for the Christian, the reality of the Spirit's presence is exponentially greater, deeper, more enduring. How little do we recognize and how incompletely do we lean into the resources of strength, wisdom, and courage available to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit? There's no question that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is active. He's said to be with people or upon them. We see here he's rushing upon people to empower them for some task. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is even more remarkable and precious in the life of a Christian. Because the Spirit of God permanently resides inside each believer in Jesus Christ. The teaching of the New Testament is that the Spirit lives in us. Jesus said that to his disciples as of the Spirit who would come. He said, he is with you and he will be in you. 
in John 14, 17. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit being in us in, various, in multiple places, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. In uh, Ephesians, he speaks of us being sealed by the Spirit. In Galatians, he talks to us about walking by the Spirit. All these things are possible because the Spirit is in us. The Spirit has taken up residence inside of us. Yet how often do we live as though these riches are not ours for the taking? As if we don't have access to his resources of power and wisdom and holiness and conviction. Those places in your life where you feel weak and helpless or out of your depth, I've used that phrase myself, of myself, several times recently. I feel out of my depth. Remember the Holy Spirit. Remember the indwelling Holy Spirit. His presence makes all the difference if we will actively, intentionally pursue him. Pray for a greater awareness of him. Walk by faith, trusting that his power in your weakness will result in your good and his glory. We ought to recognize what's available to us through the indwelling spirit and lean on him in faith. Dale Ralph Davis says of this story in 1 Samuel 11, Israel cannot afford to miss the point. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. Nor can the church afford to miss this point. It is simply Christ's Old Testament way of saying, without me, you can do nothing. The presence of the Spirit of God changes everything. So after this desperation of weakness in Jabesh, and now the strength of God's Spirit that brings this radical, unexpected deliverance, we see the people celebrating God's King. Look in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Now, he's referring there to the guys at the end of chapter 10 who doubted Saul. I think they doubted him with pretty good reason. But some of them were excited about Saul as their new king. But some of them, verse 27, said, how can this man save us? And so they despised him and brought him no present. So they had disrespected the new king by not offering some some gift. And they had, had verbally, explicitly doubted him. How is this guy going to save us from our enemies? He's hiding, right? And so now they're so worked up and so grateful and so excited about what Saul has done. They go to Samuel and they say, find us the guys who doubted Saul at his his selection last week and uh, let's kill him. Let's put him to death, right? They don't deserve to even continue among our people because they did not trust in the king that God has given to us. But Saul, look at verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So two things that are commendable there in Saul's response. First of all, he demonstrates mercy, right? Not a man shall be put to death today. He could have said, yeah, I showed you, right? You, had, you doubted me, and look what I just did for you. Off with their heads, right? Totally could have done that. But he says, no, nobody's going to die. 
and he gives God glory, doesn't he say? He says, Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. No one is going to die today because God has given us salvation. Almost like saying, I'm not going to undo God's purposes here. He saved our people. And so it's not right for us to then put some of them to death. And so he demonstrates mercy and he gives glory to God. So kudos to Saul for how he responds in that situation. Unfortunately, as the story unfolds in this book, he will not always respond in such a humble and God-glorifying way. Nevertheless, at this moment, Saul is doing what he's supposed to do. Saul has fulfilled the task that God gave him to do by the power of the Spirit, and now he's even representing God well in demonstrating mercy and giving glory to God for the victory. And so in chapter four, or excuse me, verse 14, Samuel, the prophet, said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now I think the renewal of the kingdom that, that Samuel has in mind is more than, let's just recommit to support Saul. Because I think Samuel's heartbeat is the kingship of Yahweh over the people. And in fact, he's about to launch into a speech that takes up most of chapter 12, where that's going to be what he says over and over. He's going to remind the people of their rebellion against God by asking for a king in the first place. And so he's, he's going not to give them any uh, leniency on this point. He, he, he did it when he publicly selected Saul as king. All right, everybody that rejected God as king over you and demanded a king, here he is, right? And now he's going to do it again in chapter 12. And so Samuel's heartbeat is God is king over his people. And so when he says, let's go renew the kingdom, I don't think it just means let's go give Saul a pat on the back and formally recognize him as our new leader. I think he means let's recommit ourselves to the kingship of God, to his kingdom. Not in a way that denies that Saul is now the official anointed king of Israel, but saying, let's support Saul, but let's recognize that there is an authority behind him and above him that is much more important for us. And so he wants to lead them in a, a spiritual renewal as they recommit to uh, not just the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Yahweh. And so the people gather, and it says they, uh, there they made Saul king before the Lord. And you might be a little confused about the kind of multiple times that it seems like we've seen this. Like we've, we saw, uh, you know, uh, his anointing in the beginning of chapter 10 and then the public selection in the middle of chapter 10 and now they're making him king. Like I thought he was already king. But it's, it's, it's simple enough to see kind of a private, a private anointing, a, uh, a public selection, and then sort of formal installation, right? So this is maybe akin to like an inauguration, so we all know the guy's president or whatever, we've elected him and so on. He's going to become the president, but he's not officially the president until he's inaugurated, right? That's kind of how the, the kind of current day parallel here. And so Saul now is formally and officially uh, installed as king and the people are, I mean, they're excited. They're like, we'll follow this guy. This guy's going to save us. Um, all that doubt at the end of chapter 10, that's gone. We trust in this guy to lead us and to save us now. 
And so chapter 11 ends with the people of Israel recognizing, welcoming, celebrating God's king. It was Saul's military strength and victory in battle that led the people of Israel to celebrate him in this way and to recognize him as God's appointed king. But it's Palm Sunday, and we turn our eyes to Jesus this week as he rides into Jerusalem on that Sunday morning, and he is celebrated as God's appointed king. He is welcomed and and recognized as the, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. And their expectations in that day, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, their expectations were much the same. Conquer our enemies, right? They, many of them expected the Messiah, the king, to come into town, fight their enemies, drive out the Romans, take back the kingdom by force. That's what many of them expected Jesus to do. And he would fight their enemies. And he would establish his kingdom, but not in the way that they expected Instead of fighting against the enemies of God as a political or human foe, he fights against the spiritual enemies of the people of God in defeating sin and death and Satan. And he fights not by raising up an army, not by training his guys to use swords really well and, and storming the castle. He fights by giving up his life. He fights by laying himself down for them. This is a different kind of king. This is an unexpected kind of leader. This is not the salvation the people of God anticipated, but it is nevertheless the salvation that we so desperately needed. And so as we enter Holy Week, and I would encourage you, Uh, to be mindful, to take time, to even read the stories in in the Gospels as they unfold and and look look at Jesus' experiences and and conversations and teachings in these last days of his life. But let's recognize on this Palm Sunday that the, the, the Jesus that we honor as king is the Jesus who gave himself up for us. The Jesus who demonstrated God's love in that he gave himself for sinners. He didn't just die for friends. He didn't just die for righteous people. He died for his enemies. And so we have uh, the incredible opportunity to know and to worship God through this self-giving king. And so let's welcome him and celebrate Jesus as God's king And let's give him thanks for the way that he saved us from our enemies by giving his life for ours. Let's pray.